Hi, uh, my name is Bobby Madley. Welcome to Man Marking. And we're asking, where's the talking, lads? You're going to get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Market, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Bobby Madley. Yeah, mate. Um, so I go by the name Bobby Madley. I mean, I've, I've been called a fair few things in my time. We'll stick to probably stick to Bobby tonight, which is probably the most polite one. Um, <laughs> I'm a former Premier League referee, former FIFA referee. Um, and basically, I'll be heading back to, to referee in England at some stage when the season restarts, whenever that may be. So, yeah, I mean, there's quite a story to tell. Obviously, the, it's quite well publicised there the ups and downs of what's happened over the last 18 months to two years. But, um, yeah, so basically that's it. There's no fame attached to being a referee. There's no celebrity status to being a referee. And your name is basically basically known out there because uh, usually because you make a mistake and certainly I made a couple of them. So that's me in a nutshell, mate. I've got the Um, usual two lads outside of me on the wing. I'm in the centre, the big number nine. The two wingers I've got are Ant and Ryan whipping verbal crosses into me. Uh, you both don't look particularly enthused by that introduction, but hi, boys. I no, I quite like it. Yeah, I thought it was all right as well. Which one of you is? Which one of you wants to go right, and which one of you goes left? You're obviously both right-footed, so one of you is cutting inside. Um, I'll cut in. I reckon Bob's better at swinging it from the right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Anyway, that was going then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how are, how are we, lads, Ryan? How are we, mate? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks, mate. Got a gin here. And I know, I just had yeah. um, apple crumble, so... Living the dream? Yeah, pretty much. What about you, Ant? Did you live in the dream? Uh, yeah, I think so. On, like, the ninth day of self-isolation, so just want to get outside again, really, but I realise that's, that's probably nothing in comparison to what's going on in the country. But, yeah, doing all right, doing okay. Um, I just had a cup of tea out of my little Mr. Bump cup. Obviously, this isn't an audio feature, but look at that. It's great. Excellent, mate. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to sing a weird version of 10 Days of Christmas then, like on the ninth day of isolation. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really grim in what is already quite a grim year. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, we're here. Luckily, we're here to bring the listeners and each other some much-needed some much-needed upliftment and joy. Is upliftment yeah. a word? I don't know, but we'll go it with it. Now. It is yeah. now. It is if now. If enough of us say it, it's yeah. a word. Like bounce that's back ability. That's, that's what happens. you just got to keep saying it. So we're here to bring upliftment. And if you, the listeners, are enjoying this upliftment, then uh, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a little five-star review and comment saying, I did not feel some upliftment from this podcast in the comment section. That was convincing, wasn't it? Mm. Super, mate. I think you've got a real talent for this. Thanks, mate. I've got a future in the old, uh, the old voice game. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> moving on to the opening question. Bobby Madley, 
is today's guest. He's a, a proud Yorkshireman. So what I want from you two lads is, and, and Ant, I'm going to start with you, is your favourite Yorkshire footballer. Go. Can I just call him my favourite Yorkshire person? Yeah, of course I, you can. Um, Mick McCarthy. Yeah. yeah I, I, you can't get past, like, obviously he was a good footballer back in his day, plays, you know, for the Republic of Ireland, strangely, played for Barnsley as well, I think. You know, very good footballer, but the best thing about Mick McCarthy is when he told his own fans to fuck off. When they and just scored. Yeah, and it's the, the best thing I've ever seen. It's And you get all the, you know, even the one where he's like giving it the little suave look and the dugout and when he gets scared by someone who's not even there. It's fantastic. That him being scared by like a, an invisible person. <laughs> is up there with when um is it Mike Peelan when he he pops the balloon next to Fergie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he goes, what the, the fuck was that? <laughs> it was at um, Stamford Bridge, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's superb. But yeah, he's my favourite uh, favourite Yorkshireman. Yeah, superb. Ryan, what about you, mate? Favourite Yorkshire-based footballer? I'm gonna go with Marco Gabbiadini simply because he doesn't sound like he should be from Yorkshire. A few people might pull me up on it and say he was born in Nottingham, but I'm pretty sure he grew up in the York area, started his career there. Played over 700 games, scored 276 goals, and he's just got a fantastic name. So he's a bit of a football manager legend as well when I first started playing in the early 2000s. So I thought I'd go with someone a bit rogue. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. Yeah, he was he, he was educated in York, so I'm going to guess he, he grew up there, came through at York City. Absolutely. So Yeah, you can have that one. They don't make them like that anymore. 791 games across the Football League in the Premier League. No, some going now. Some yeah. going. Uh, I went for Dominic Calvert-Lewin because he's gorgeous, isn't he? He's absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. What a man. And he scored what? last night against a, a team from his, his homeland. So that was yeah. A, yeah. Oh, yeah. a dagger to the heart, I'm sure, of the Sheffield faithful, given that he's a United boy. Um, but yeah, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Look, look, no votes look, for Vardy. Well, I did write Vardy down, but I thought one of you two might go for it, so that's why I didn't go. For <laughs> I did it. the same. <laughs> um, just, just purely for him smashing up that corner flag the other week. Just for well, that type of behaviour. There was, there was that, and then when the fans were in the ground, wasn't he saying "fuck off, fuck off"? I'm Jamie Vardy. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't it's it? Like... And when he scored that goal against United, where it was like, wasn't it the tenth on the spin? Yeah. Or something? yeah. And he was pointing at himself, going, "Me." Me. <laughs> I swear, awesome. there's a compilation of him just giving shit to fans. There's a, re- there's a really well, good against one. West Brom. Yeah, West Brom. It always <laughs> seems to be against West Brom. And then he did it, didn't he, this season when he scored and there was nobody there and he was cupping his ears and everything. There's one, when he, pu- oh. there's one when he punched himself in the face as well for missing a sitter at Hull. Yeah. It reminded me of, you know, when Sean Flynn used to do press-ups after he gave the ball away. <laughs> Which is sort of irresponsible when you play in the middle of midfield. Yeah, that's helpful. I know. But get off back the in. floor, Sean, <laughs> and win it back. I can't. I've got to do these. You don't have to do them. I do. No, you don't. And I imagine that's how the conversation went. So moving on to Bobby Madley. I think before we kind of get into the interview, it's probably worth us just uh, caveating it by saying that we did record this last year whilst Bobby was still living out in Norway. He has subsequently come back to the UK and has begun refereeing again. Uh, his first game was Paul Vale versus Morecambe, which was back in October of 2020. So, first Paul to call, and do you want to tell the listeners why we wanted to speak to, to Bobby Madley and how this interview came about? 
Uh, we well, obviously, Bobby Madley made it, it was a bit of a name anyway because he's a Premier League referee. And then obviously the story came out. There was a load of rumours going around the the Twitter rumour mill, um, and it came to fruition that it was completely, you know, different to, to what had come out. And I think the main reason we wanted to speak to him is because he. You know, we wanted to know that story. How do you come back from something like that? How do you do you, do you get on with your life? Obviously, being at that level, it's a high level of, of talent, really. Um, to be able to referee a match at any level, I think, is quite difficult. Um, so, you know, we were we were really interested. Is I think, was it, his DMs were open, possibly? Yes, they were. Yeah, so, which again was was, was a bit... Uh, not strange, but a bit surprising because of of the the things that he'd gone through. But all of all of the tweets that he'd put out previously were just really open and honest. And and I'm, I think it was I think it is the only the only referee that we've had on on, on the show. So it was um, it was great to, to probably take another one off the list of of who's involved in football. Um, yeah. So yeah. So true. we were really we were really excited to do it as well. And it was uh, as you're going to hear in a bit. It was a really fun interview to do. Yeah, he was great. He was a really nice fella and he was very generous with his with his time that evening. And Ryan, we always have a theme. Do you want to give the uh, the listeners this week's theme? Yeah, so the theme was a return to refereeing after losing everything. And I think it shines through in the episode just uh, how resilient he is as, as a person on and off the pitch. Um, so yeah, that, that was the theme. And I think it was uh, very relevant to the, the interview itself. Absolutely. And that's that's our theme. If, if you've got any themes that you pick up throughout the interview, then we'd love to hear them. Send them to, uh, to the email address, which is manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send it to our DMs or tweet us. And the Twitter handle is at marking underscore man. So we're now going to leave you with Bobby Madley's interview and we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. <laughs> And the big question, Bobby, who do you support? I'm an Huddersfield fan. I, I'm, I'm sort of two teams. I mean, I have my local team, Osset United, who, who play in the, well, what was the Unibond League and the Northern Premier League. Um, so Osset United, I, I'm, whether people just throw it at me and think I try and hide behind a non-league club, I don't. I'm genuinely a, a big fan of Osset. I mean, we're heavily involved with the club. Um, but I grew up as an Huddersfield fan. I'm from Wakefield in West Yorkshire. Um, I'm sort of halfway between Huddersfield and Leeds. My dad moved down from Glasgow when he was younger and obviously opted for Huddersfield, so it's his fault. Um, <laughs> I've been for everything that I've been through over the last 30-odd years of my life. And uh, Yeah, I, I used to follow Huddersfield home and away, mate, when I was younger, obviously. I have to stop doing that a little bit when uh, when refereeing takes hold because your weekends have gone then. But, yeah, still follow the town results. We're um, Ant and, Ant and I are both Tramia fans, so we've... Uh... We've been up to Huddersfield a fair few times. Normally, come home without any points, but uh, do you know what? I've been over there a few times as well, and I can't remember ever coming back from Prenton Park with any points either, as well. So, in that terrifying away stand, actually at Tranmere, isn't it? Oh, in the cow shed. Oh my god! Sit at the back of that stand, and you feel like you sat on top of the net. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those. um, It's one of those funny things, really, because they used to have the home home fans in there for years, and then. When we played um, Bolton in the Wavens Cup semi-final, they yeah. put Bolton fans in that end basically as part of the to, to kind of split the home and away fans up for the police mm. in. And 
pretty much ever since then they've had away fans down that end. Oh, wow. And for years, it's always it, it's been one of those things where the acoustics are really good in that stand. Yeah. So you know you only need about fifty people in there, and you can make an absolute racket. Probably. So there's, been, there's always been one of those things where they've been like, "Oh, we'd love the home fans to go back in the cow sheds because you can yeah. just make blow the noise." It is a pretty scary place on a Tuesday night at the back of that, especially especially <laughs> after a few uh, a few alcoholic beverages as well. A bit of a scary <laughs> place. <laughs> um, and obviously the, the, the podcast is about uh, mental health Bobby and, and men's yeah. mental health so can you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for us yeah look I mean uh, obviously as I've already touched on my own story going over the last two years or so just under two years um, and mental health is, is probably one of those things that I never considered that much, if I'm honest. I mean, as silly as it sounds, my mum was actually a mental health nurse. So she worked in psychiatric nursing. And so I've always been around mental health in that sense. But I suppose until you actually feel the, um, you know, the the potential the repercussions and, and how difficult it is when you start living with certain things, then I think you'd start to get a feeling for it. So what I did find is that by talking about it and by talking about things that had happened, it didn't just open it up for me and, and help me sort of to begin to recover from the things I'd gone through. Um, but I actually found other people were contacting me, you know, privately just to, to tell me their story. And it just highlighted and just hit home really how many people actually suffer in their daily lives from it and, and sort of aren't able to talk. And I just think this is a really good platform to to talk about it you know i know we, we talk about men's mental health obviously everybody's is important but i think there is a stigma attached that you know if you're a man and you and you are struggling a little bit you know it's just it's just a bit more macho just to keep quiet and not let people show a weakness and um i think as a society i think we're moving to a really you know much better place now where we're, we're making a platform and saying you know it's actually not only is it okay to talk um people want to hear you people you know it's the right thing to do so that's the main basis of this mate I, I just think it's important to get any of those stories out there and just allow people to to maybe resonate a little bit with it and think yeah i can relate to that um and maybe yeah. help them in their own struggles if that's the case yeah i think you i think you're you're spot on bobby i think as we saw with lee hendry on the uh, harry's heroes program the other night that yeah. we're moving to a, a looks as though you know slowly but surely the the, the tide is changing on that front in terms of if somebody like a you know a former Premier League footballer can sit on ITV and talk about yeah. suicide and that sort of thing, then it, it shows exactly how much the tide is changing. Um, so you said you're, you're currently living in Norway at the moment. How different is life over there to living in England? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you'd have asked me that a few months ago, then it might have been a, a different question altogether. I think life's a little bit crazy everywhere at the moment, mate, isn't it? Um, we're quite fortunate, I suppose, in Norway that the as a country they locked down with with the current crisis. They locked down very quickly, um, and so they managed to keep the, the sort of the, the death rate as terrible as it still is. Uh, they managed to keep it very very low over here. So things have started to reopen. Um, in terms of actually living in Norway, most of the people speak incredibly good English. They're taught it from a young age. They watch. English and American TV. So a lot of young guys just have American accents. Um, <laughs> I've obviously, I've, I've started to learn, I've learned the language. I'm not completely fluent, but I can I can certainly get by over here in Norwegian now, which is quite nice. 
Um, but it's a great place to live. Incredibly expensive. Um, as a Yorkshireman, that's something I would never get get used to. A thirteen pound a pint's not not my uh, not my idea of a good night out. So, but no, it's it, it's a good, it's a cracking place to live. Beautiful country, really, really good people, and massive, massive English football fans as well, which obviously always gives me something to speak to speak about with people. Yeah, that so that that kind of segues nicely into into my next question. Really, how does how how different is the kind of the football landscape out there compared to, to back at home? Yeah, I mean, certainly from a refereeing perspective, it's very different. They, uh, they're they a very respectful nation. I think that kind of finds its way onto the football pitch. So, so many times last season, you'd, you'd have a player who would foul someone and they apologise straight away, almost to me as the ref, you know, sorry sorry for putting you out and having to give a free kick. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in that sense, it's, uh, it's very different. Obviously, they have a professional top league, the elite Assyrian, uh, the second division, the Obos League, and is some. I think a couple of the teams will be professional, most of them semi-professional, and then underneath that, really, you, you're talking, you're going into lower end of semi-pro and amateur football. Uh, so it's, there's not the the depth of English football in terms of so many professional divisions. Most of the games are played on artificial pitches as well. Obviously, once it gets to minus twenty in the winter time here, that's a little bit brutal. So. They need to have a, a you know surfaces that uh, that make it able to play football, and as a ref again, that's different from me coming from grass pitches to artificial. It played on my calves, it played on my Achilles all last season. Um, I struggled with little niggly injuries as a result of it because again, it's something I'm not used to doing. So yeah, it's uh, the the football is good. Technically, they're very good players, um, but I, I think there is an element of if you're a big guy in this country, you tend to you tend to ski, you tend to play ice hockey, a little bit like America, I suppose, to an extent that the players seem to be a little bit smaller for whatever reason, physically a little bit smaller. And because of the pitches, it takes out those crunching tackles as well that you would see on a you know, on a wet Prenton Park on a Tuesday night. So, again, the physical element of that is is probably not as high as it is in England. Yeah, they, they always say, don't they, about... Um about Haaland, that he was quite short and up until mm. he was about 15. So he had yeah. to learn all those, get you know, all the technical skills. Yeah, yeah. And then he just shot up all of a sudden and was just a massive fella with really good technical ability, which has obviously held him in good stead, really, when he's moved over to the Bundesliga. Yeah, and, and they're incredibly proud. They're a very proud nation of any Norwegian who has success on the world stage. They, they celebrate that like anything. So... Um, but yeah, they're, they're very proud of how he's doing at the moment. The national team obviously have a chance of qualifying for the for the Euros, and that's been put back a year, which they're a bit disappointed about here. But they have some top players here, and they're, they're improving as well as the youth teams as well. So I think Norway. I don't think they'll they're not in a position where they're going to be second in the world like they were in the mid nineties, but they're certainly coming back as a, a bit of a force in European football. So it's been quite exciting to come in and uh, and watch that. Yeah, I can well imagine it. The, the it, it always looks like a very interesting place to to live, Scandinavia, in in, mm. in in all the different countries. So I can imagine it must be a really interesting experience. Um, so obviously you've been a, a referee since you were you were sixteen. Why did you want to be a referee, Bobby? I didn't, mate. Is the is the short answer <laughs> to that? It was an absolute mistake. Um, I I hated referees when I was a player. Absolutely hated them and. I had a real arrogance and a real chip on my shoulder as a young player. 
Uh, I played at a couple of academies, a couple of school of excellences when I was young, up until the age of 16. And I didn't make it. I wasn't good enough. I had a couple of injuries, but I just wasn't good enough. I didn't develop as, as quickly as, as some of the other guys did. And obviously, some of the guys that were in my team went on to play uh, professional football. Um, I went back to play for my youth team. I'd, I'd played for Osset Town, my local club team. I kept playing for them anyway throughout sort of my, my youth days. Um, and we were playing in the second or third division. And it just wasn't a challenge. I was getting more frustrated. I'd come from playing at Barnsley and come back to play at, at Osset Town and scoring, I think I scored, I'd looked at it, it was about 200, 220 goals or something in three seasons. Um, and it, it just wasn't fun scoring 10, 11 goals in, in a game. There's not, you know, there's not much fun to that. So I was getting on the referees back every week and this little old guy who refed us, he just said, look, take a referee's course. You don't have to be a ref. But what you're saying to me is nonsense. You're shouting stuff at me that you don't know the, the laws of the game. And I had a bit of a chip, like I said. So I basically took him up and he said, you take the ref's course, call me what you want. I thought, well, that's too good enough at a pass, isn't it? And <laughs> I, I basically paid 15 quid, had a look, took a referee's course, no intention ever of refereeing. I took Andy along, my brother. Um, he certainly had no intention of refereeing. He just came to keep me company. Um and it turned out all right. You know, he's now a FIFA referee on the Premier League and I ended up as a FIFA referee on the Premier League. And and that little bit of luck, really, that little guy just challenging my ego at, at 16 year old, um, gave me a little pathway into professional football that I wouldn't have had as a player. Do you think then the fact that you were a, you were a decent footballer when you were younger and, and played to a decent standard, that because that, you, you were quite young, weren't you, when you started refereeing in the Premier mm. League, comparatively? I, I I always thought um, Michael Oliver was particularly young. I didn't yeah. realize that you were. Were you younger or about the same? No, my, yeah, my, Michael was younger than me. I think Michael was about 20, 24 or something. Twenty five yeah. when he did his first Premier League game. So Michael was younger. I'm not sure that I'll ever be beaten now, to be honest. But he's a bit of a phenomenon in terms of refereeing. Is Michael? So that's you know that's that's another story, I suppose. But he is a, a world class ref. Um, but yeah. It was it was quite young. I started as I started when I was sixteen, um, and I learned a lot very quickly. I actually fell in love with it straight away. It took Andy two or three years to really enjoy it. He, he just did it for the money, um, but I really loved it for whatever reason. I just got the bug, and um, by eighteen, you know, I, I, I was quite tall when I was young, so I wouldn't really advocate this. But when I was sixteen, seventeen, I could get into pubs. No one really asked because I was six foot. Um, by the time I was 18, I, didn't, I was enjoying refereeing that much that um, I, I didn't really want to go out on a Friday or Saturday night because I had a game on a Saturday or a, it might only be a you know, local league game or a West Yorkshire league game, but I, I started to take it a little bit more serious. Um, and as you said, progressed up a little bit through those levels, a little bit of luck along the way. Uh, so I started at 16 and, and was an assistant referee, first of all, on the Premier League at 23. So that was pretty quick. Seven years was pretty quick to do that. And then ref my first Premier League game, I think I was 26 when I did the first one. So 10 years it took. It's still a long, a long hike, you know, but and that is pretty quick in terms of refereeing. So there's there's no fast track to the top. Um, you know, you've got to work hard. Any young referees who, who want to listen to this, then there is no, you know, magic potion that's suddenly going to make you a Premier League referee. And do you think I suppose one thing that's just kind of come to mind there? I don't think I've ever really considered before. Do you think that that same level of discipline that you need to show 
to become a footballer, you almost needed to show to be able to, to to become a professional referee as well. You need to, you know, sacrifice things and and, and dedicate your your sort of spare time to it and that type of thing to be able to get ahead of other people. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, like I said, I used to go to Huddersfield every week and suddenly you've got to give up doing that. And that's a, that's a huge life change, you know, because you, you're used to doing it. You used to go in there with your mates on a Saturday and travelling on the bus to go to the away games down at Plymouth on a Tuesday night. And suddenly, yeah, that stops. And you stop going out with your mates and you've got that choice. You know, you, you miss it at the time when you're 16, 17, she wants to do something on a Sunday and you're saying, I, I can't, I'm refereeing a Wakefield Sunday league game. So there is a lot of commitment there. Obviously, the further up you go, the more commitment there is, but you know it becomes a career, so that's you don't mind that so much. But there is no easy easy route there, Dan. You know, I think I see some young referees who start now, and they want to they see it as a career. It was never really a career. It was never really a career option when I started, um, and I didn't think of it as a career for probably even until I was on the football league, to be honest. Um, but now I see some young referees who get into it, and they they want to ref the World Cup final tomorrow. And it's just not going to happen. You know, those those years of Sunday League football, I was doing 120, 130 games a season, doing five games a weekend. You know, Saturday morning and afternoon, then Sunday morning, and then two juniors in the afternoon. And yeah, it was a bit of money that paid me through university. Um, but in every one of those games, you're learning something. And it's not about being, I think the difference in refereeing and football, I think as a footballer to make it, you've got to be, Incredibly committed, but I think you've also got to have a little bit of a ruthless streak there. There's got mm. to be a little, almost a selfish streak in a positive way. Um, as a ref, I'm not sure you need that. You almost have to go the other way because you've got to be a team player. You know, if you're called out, if a footballer's ruthless and arrogant and whatever else, but scores 40 goals a season, he'll become a professional footballer because that's what clubs want. As a ref, you're gonna get, you need to get the best out of your team. And if you're seen as arrogant, that's not going to happen. So you've got to have that commitment, but you've also got to be a, a decent person. I'm sure there's some top, top referees who've never made it because of their attitude and because of their personality. So it's got to be not just what you do on the pitch. It's got to be everything you do off it as well. And, and commitment absolutely comes as right at the top of that. I suppose it's almost like if you're trying to become a footballer, you want to be noticed on the pitch. Mm. Whereas the best asset a referee can have is almost to not be noticed. Because that yeah, means that, no problem. That, yeah, that's a tough bit, isn't it? Everyone says, "Oh, the best refs you don't see." I, I don't agree with that completely. I think, I think the best referees you don't see, and unless you need to see them, yeah, um, you know, you, you've got to be strong enough to to stand up in front of seventy thousand people and say, "This might be unpopular, but sorry, this is a decision." When you look at the great football teams, great football players, you look at Germany in the in the World Cup in Brazil. You know, they go to Brazil and beat them 7-1 in a semi-final. That's ruthless. That's that's a team who says, we're going to be at our very best and we don't care how upset we're going to make the fans. As a ref, you've almost got to do that every game. You've got to go out and do what is right for your team and what's right for the game and not even consider repercussions of who it might upset in the fans. So, yeah, it is a it is quite a bizarre um, quite a bizarre job to have in that sense. And when you were you were sort of... In your teenage years, I mean, you started out refereeing. Did you ever have to referee kind of friends or people that you played with and, and that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I had um, I had a couple of mates from my team who actually went on to make it professional. So none that that made it into you know real top class uh, or sort of Premier League levels. 
Richard Wood. I went to school with Woody, and Woody, I think, is still captain at, at Rotherham now. Yeah. Um, so Rich was a year above me at school. We played in the same junior team, so I'm still good friends with Richard. Um, there was Drew Talbot, who went to Chef Wednesday for a bit, and I'm sorry, went to Hartlepool for a bit, and then went down to, I think he's at Chesterfield now, Drew. Nicky Rowe, again, who who played some decent football league football. He was at Swindon, I think, and Preston. So, yeah, the, you don't really think about it as a ref because you see them before the game, you have a bit of a crack with them in the warm-up, chat with them in the tunnel. But ultimately, I've got a job to do and they've got a job to do. They don't care that they went to school with me. If I give a penalty and they think I'm wrong, I'm still going to get it. <laughs> you know. And similarly, I can't, I can't know them in that sense. You know, so other than people that I knew from my childhood, I don't have any players' numbers in my phone. I don't have any managers' numbers in my phone because for the 90 minutes, you're just professional. It's a professional relationship. And you've got to learn quickly as a ref, certainly at that level. You're never, ever friends with players. You can get on with them. You can get along. You can have mutual respect. But you're never friends because the moment that it's that player or me, they're going to throw me under the bus straight away. They're not going to consider me. And I don't I don't mind that. That's their job. In the same respect, if it's me or them, I'm going to give the right decision and not consider their feelings. I'm going to do what I think is right. And if it's a red card, it's a red card. So you can't take personal relationships onto the pitch. Um, and as I said, at a professional level, I don't think it's right to have professional relationships, oh, sorry, to have personal relationships with them in the game, other than people that you've grown up with as a kid that you know, you're not going to dismiss that. Um, I assume when you were um, before you became a, a Premier League referee, it, is it right that the football league referee is it still not not fully professional? Mm. Yeah, did you have another job then alongside it? I did yeah. I mean, even now, mate, the the championship referees are all full time professional, but the referees in League One and League Two are not. You know, they're not on any kind of professional contract at all. They're they're basically paid per game. They're not employed. Um. So they all have their own careers. So, you know, I, I was the same. I worked in a school. I worked in education. Then when I when I came out of that, um, I studied. I studied history at university. So, obviously, that was I needed that to be a ref. <laughs> that was a university, that was university fees well spent on it. Um, <laughs> but basically, I went from from teaching there from secondary to uh, I, I ended up working for the FA in West Yorkshire, West Riding as the Head of referee development, which was good because it gave me a little bit of flexibility around football as well. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, there, there's times when I've had to, you know, you've got to leave work at midday, drive to Plymouth on a Tuesday, referee the game, leave Plymouth at 11 o'clock at night, get home at four o'clock in the morning, you're up for work again the next morning. And that's the reality of a ref. And talked about commitment earlier. That is the reality. You know, the, the Premier League guys and the Championship guys, yes, they have the luxury of traveling the night before, and that is their full-time job. But for the Football League referees, and they're not kept particularly local, it's a national list, so if you live in Sunderland, you can be sent to Plymouth. Um, so, yeah, that, that level of commitment can be tough. It can take its toll job-wise. You need a good boss, and you need a good missus at home as well, or, or fella at home, if that's the case, because there's obviously female officials on there as well. Um, you've got to have an understanding an understanding circle around you and a supportive circle because it's uh, it can certainly be tiring mentally and physically it can be tiring at that level. So when you started um 
So when you became a, a full professional and you started refereeing at the you know the championship and the Premier League, what was the the differences that you noticed straight away from refereeing at that level to say refereeing in uh, sort of upper levels of the conference and and lower levels of the football league? Yeah, the um, I mean, championship wasn't professional when I was on. So the referees at that there's a misconception actually that referees who referee League Two, you know, they're not as good as the refs who do the championship. At that time, it was all the same list. You know, you did a championship one week, League Two the next. So the main difference is actually is that football becomes easier to ref. Um, grassroots football, junior football, is is the hardest level to referee because of the abuse that you can sometimes get, and you can hear that. You know that individual on the side of the pitch when there's 50,000 people there you don't hear the individual comments um but I certainly found coming through that the conference at the time um it was a strong league it was, there were some strong teams in there I actually thought refereeing wise and physically wise that was the hardest level to ref um the tackles were hard players just got on with it they didn't expect yellow cards to be thrown around so that was that was really tough. It's, it gave you a really good ground into to go into the football league, and then the higher up the football league you go, it's not that it becomes easier. It's just that the football becomes a little bit more, you know, predictable. If it goes to the right back and he wants to send it sixty yards across the pitch, once you're in the Premier League, it goes there. Yeah, know, it goes to feet, and you can start to read it. You asked earlier about whether playing the game helps. I don't think you need to have played at any particular level to to ref at the top level. But I think it helps. I think if you can think the way the footballer thinks, um, what would I do in this situation? Then your positioning becomes a lot easier because you're actually moving to that next position before they've made that pass because you're starting to read the game. Um, but, you know, the, this is where, the, for me, this is where players become great players because you read the game and you move into that position and then they do something brilliant. They do something completely different that you just don't even think is, you know, is possible. So that's, that's when it becomes tough to ref in the Premier League. When you get the central midfielders who put this magical pass in that takes you 50 yards out of position. Um, so then it's tough. Then it's tough to do. But in terms of managing the game, actually, the higher up the level you go, the, I think the easier, the easier football becomes to ref. And you talk there about the the sort of the the abuse and stuff that you get, particularly at mm. you know at like uh, Sunday league level. I mean, um, Ant and I both used to um, coach a, a kids football team, and we were we were actually uh, talking about a referee. We got into a little bit of a standoff with on one Sunday morning, and I, I, it was it was quite a funny one, really, because we were always very conscious of not giving referees stick, but. Yeah. It was one of those. It was. It, I don't. I can't even remember how, how it happened. But you know, one of those things where you just, it yep. just completely got out of hand. But it wasn't like an abuse thing. It was more just, oh come on, it, 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 have you given it that way again? Like one of those yep. type. Things. So in terms of being on the pitch and, and dealing with that, how do you, how you, when you, because you were obviously quite young when you started. Yeah, that must have been quite intimidating as a as a teenager to probably have parents and stuff and, and, and older fellas and that sort of thing, giving you a bit of grief. How did you kind of reconcile with that? Yeah, this is, I think, I'm going to sound like a proper old man now. Um, <laughs> I, I genuinely think there's been a, a society shift, even from when I was 16, so this is, what, 18 years ago. I think there's been a massive shift in that when I was 16, I communicate. I thought I communicated quite well um, with people, with adults, so if someone challenged it, I wouldn't have an issue in if a player challenged someone, 
I wouldn't have an issue in going back and, and saying something back to them. And that sort of gains that respect a little bit. I think now we, we, today's generation of young referees that start, there seems to be a little bit missing in terms of communication. I don't know whether it's, and again, sound like an old man here, but whether it is because your face is always in a phone, because your face is always, you know, on the computer or, and that, that communication skill is one of the most vital things you can have as a referee. Being able to look somebody in the eye is a massive skill and be able to tell them that's enough. And a 16-year-old saying that to a guy who's, you know, got in at four o'clock in the morning and has turned out on a football pitch on a Sunday, it does take a little bit of, of something different to be able to do it. Um, I don't envy the guys going out in junior football now because I think that's worse now than it was. It was never perfect when I refed in it. But I think it's worse now. Um, and it is the hardest level of football to ref without a doubt. So for me, I, I always try to engage with players. I try to talk to players. There is no set rule of how a referee can manage a player because everybody's different. There are certain players who you just ignore because you know you're not going to have a conversation with them. They're just going to shout at you. So just ignore that. There are other players that You've got to put your arm around every five minutes and say, you're playing really well today. Keep going. Because you know the moment you lose them, then you're not going to get them back. And it's almost, if you think, I mean, again, it's a little bit cliche, but the way I, I like to put it across is when this thing's going on in a game of football, there are little fires that, that just light up every now and again. And you've got to be quick enough to go and put that fire out. But not every fire extinguisher is the same. You know, different fires need different fire extinguishers. And as a ref, you've got to be able to have all of those in your armory. Which which one needs the kind word? Which one needs the stern look? Which one needs the yellow card straight away? So you've got to learn through experience as to which, you know, which fire extinguisher to use on which particular fire. And because you use the wrong one, you can, you know, you, you end up with an inferno and then you, you lose control of the game. So, yeah, that... That comes with experience. I don't think anybody walks into a game of football from any walk of life. You know, it doesn't matter what age you are. You can only learn that by refereeing and refereeing and refereeing. And this is why 130 games a season probably came in handy for me because I learned something in every one of those games. Did you ever have a moment where somebody said something or something happened and you thought, you know, because as you say, at a grassroots level, mm. you know, referees are turning up and getting 10, <clears> 15, 20 quid and... They're basically a lot of people see them as almost uh, uh, it's almost fair game, like they're almost yeah. just a bag for the frustrations for an hour and a half. Particularly, at, I mean, I've played Sunday League level, and and some of the things that people would say to referees, and some of the stories that we've heard from 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 some of the league ground our ways, and, and and things that have happened to referees, and you just think, why would somebody get up on a Sunday morning and, and put themselves through that? It just seems just seems quite extraordinary that people would continue to turn out and do it. It is, but as I said earlier, mate, you know, the, the problem is, same with any refereeing performance, no one ever talks about the good points. You only talk about the negative side of a refereeing performance. And unfortunately, the press that refereeing gets is all negative. So when we talk about, you know, the enjoyment of refereeing, it always comes back to, yeah, but abuse. I'll be honest, I've never, ever felt as though I was about to be physically, you know, assaulted as a referee. I don't feel as though, I don't know, I can probably count on maybe two hands throughout my career how many times I feel as though I've been properly abused as a ref. Um, in professional football, I, I actually don't think I've ever sent anybody off for for being abusive towards me. 
And that's not because I'm shirking responsibilities. We all have different tolerance thresholds. Mine is maybe a little bit higher than others. Um, you played at a good level. Possibly. And maybe, and maybe that you, you're almost, as you said, you, 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 you quite, you, you're physically quite, you know, a similar sort of size maybe to the players yeah. and you speak the same language as them and you're used to being on the pitch. It, it, maybe you fit in a little bit better than maybe people who don't quite have that background. Yeah, possibly. I mean, again, it's not saying that one particular background will get you as a Premier League referee, but you're right, I'm, I'm over six foot. I grew up in Council House in a very working class area. And so, yeah, being being shouted at when you're playing football was something I was used to. You had to grow up quickly, even as a player, because when you've got, you know, if you do turn out for a Sunday league team, you're going to get kicked. So... I probably grew up quickly in that sense. And I think that maybe helped. As I said, I was tall at 16, which which helped. And I was quite broad as well. So again, I probably didn't look 16. Um, but I, it's interesting when you look at the areas that referees come from, certainly the, the top end of of refereeing. Eight, when I was on those 18 professional referees on the Premier League, um, there was one from the, or two from the Southwest, um, one from Luton, one from Birmingham, one from Leicester, and the rest from the North. And there is nobody, there was nobody at the time, still really, that are from London, um, which is quite strange, you know, considering population-wise. I don't know the theory behind that. My, my gut feeling is that I think in the North, generally, the communication levels are, are a little bit stronger than they are in, in London, for example. You know, I know if I sit on a bus next to someone going to Wakefield, I'll sit and chat to the guy next to me and they'll chat away. It's different when you get on the tube in London. So whether there is that little bit of, you're just brought up around communicating with strangers a little bit more. Again, I mentioned about Norway. Norway, the Norwegians, as, as friendly as they are, they don't engage with strangers. It, they, they, have, they have to have a reason to speak to someone. And that kind of puts it over to on the referees on the football pitch as well, because a lot of the communication they do is with cards because they're not brought up around just speaking to people that they don't know. I think in the North, we, we're used to doing that in Liverpool. And it's tough football, Dan. You know, West Yorkshire is a tough place. Yeah. Liverpool is a tough place. Newcastle is a tough place. And I think if you're growing up as a 16, 17, 18-year-old and able to manage Liverpool Sunday League, and, you know, Wakefield Sunday League, it gives you a hell of a good foundation um, in terms of growing up quickly and, and gaining life skills quickly to be able to to use them moving up through the pyramid. So I think there is an element of that. I do think there's an element of, of background. But as I said, David Ellery, you know, became one of the country's, one of the world's top referees. And David was a Harrow schoolmaster. So that just proves it doesn't have to be a working class background to do that. It's probably very similar to the reason that you get a lot of footballers from similar backgrounds mm. as well. That you yeah. can, you know, we when I we were in college and we used to go over to some some schools in Liverpool and they'd be they'd literally just be all the lads on the pitch, the, yeah. the PE teacher who'd taken us over there, and then you'd be in somewhere in the middle of Croxter or something, and there'd just be about fifteen lads with their odds up, holding yeah. balls stood on the side of the pitch, <laughs> and you'd just be like. I was almost like, I really don't want to win this game just so we yeah. get out alive. We did. We played someone once. It was, I can't remember the name of the schools. It was it was Stephen Gerrard's old school and we were 1-0 down. 
And then we scored in the last minute to make it one all, and we'd absolutely robbed it. We'd been terrible. We'd been absolutely battered, and we <laughs> stole it. And it was proper moody. And I was just like, I just want to get. Can we just? I don't even want to shower. Can we just get on the bus and go home? Because this yeah. is horrible. So to, to that, I just I, it, it it does make you think. I suppose that you if you get used to that environment, then being stood on a, on a professional pitch is probably probably a lot easier in in a lot of yeah. ways. I suppose. Um, kind of moving on to, to sort of where we're at now with, with refereeing. I think in the last few years, one of the interesting sort of changes that we've seen perhaps with, with sort of Sky Sports and BT and, and, and different media outlets is the, the advent of using referees as, as pundits. Um, Peter Walton does a lot of stuff on BT, Graham Pohl. We've seen Howard Webb obviously on, on Sky. Do you have any, any sort of thoughts on that, on that type of dynamic? Yeah, I think if it's done if it's done properly, um, and it's done for the right reasons, I, I think it can benefit. We've we've almost saturated football now. We've saturated everything out of it with you know fancy screens and showing what players should do and tactics and boards. And refereeing is one element of football that majority of football fans are not exposed to. You know, it's almost a little. It seems a little bit cloak and dagger sometimes. So to be able to explain basically what refereeing's about, first of all, um, and then to be able to explain why a ref made a decision, it's dead easy for it. My mum can sit there and say whether it's right or wrong, but she couldn't tell you why. She couldn't tell you the thought process, and I think that's what ex-referees can bring to that. I think Howard was brilliant at it. Pete Walton does a really good job. Chris Foy does a really good job. Um, Dermot goes out on a Monday, and I feel for Dermot sometimes because... I'm not sure he gets the platform to be able to do it. That pla- that platform of is the ref right or wrong, it, it almost feels like a bit of a jury. And yeah. Dermot's just up there for a bit of a, a beating, you know. It's And I, I'm not quite comfortable with that. I've, I've done a bit of work over here, actually, in Norway with TV2, with the Norwegian channels who they do the, um, the Premier League games over here. And their media is so different to the British media. I was dead sceptical of when I came over because you, you grow up in the British media and you just don't have that trust for journalism. Um, but they're very different here and they made that point very quickly. And what I've done with TV2 is uh, they've got some ex-players who who do it, Eric Torsvet, uh, Breda Hangeland. Um, and what they would do is they'd be commentating on a game. Hangeland, for instance, would commentate on a game. Um, and if something happened that was potentially controversial refereeing-wise, he just send me a text and while he's commentating and just say, what's your thought process? What's what's the referee thinking? They were not interested in, is he right or wrong? Because they can make their own mind up on that. They just said, what's the referee thinking? I'd send back and say, look, he's looking at this angle. This is If it's a corner kick, he's looking here. He couldn't have seen that. And it wasn't a matter of me defending the refs at all cost. It was every time a ref makes a mistake, there's a reason why they've made a mistake. And it's not financial. You know, every mistake is an honest mistake in the Premier League. So there's a reason for it. And I think there is an interest in understanding what that reason is. I would send that back to Breda. And within a minute, Breda would, he wouldn't say he spoke to me. They would just say, oh, well, maybe if we look at this angle, we can see the referees not quite got the best view of that. And they tried then to, to educate and for me, that was brilliant. I didn't have my name thrown out on Norwegian TV. It wasn't Bobby Madley says. It was Norwegian ex-footballers trying to learn. 
and then yeah. trying to pass that on to fans. I think there's a great platform to do that. You know, the, it's quite sad that some ex-referees decide not to be helpful. Um, but since I left, I, we, we're not allowed to have social media as a referee in England. Um, but So when I left, I, I got social media. I didn't really know what Twitter was about. But I really enjoyed the time on it because I would go on and just explain what refs are thinking. I never threw a ref under the bus. Um, but again, I didn't just blindly say, oh, no, they're, they're right because of the ref. I tried to explain a little bit, and I think people appreciated that. Um, so there is a platform. Again, I, I think it's sad that some ex-referees use that platform for a little bit of bitterness and to keep themselves relevant. Um, but, you know, if, if that's the way they want to go, then fine. That's, it's a shame, but they know how hard the job is. You know, and to just go and criticise in tabloid newspapers that, I don't know what they give you, what, 100 quid? <laughs> but for the sake of that, I'd, I would rather keep my integrity than, than sell my soul like that. Yeah, they often think sometimes, and the reason kind of that we wanted to ask the question was it, it often sometimes looks as though it comes down to a bit of a binary decision, right or wrong. Mm. And there's far more, obviously, that goes into it. It's the same with playing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if, it, 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 often it, it, it's... A decision can be can be both right and wrong, or somebody can think it's right, and someone else can think it's wrong, and and often it's it doesn't come that it doesn't really matter whether it was right or wrong. It's about understanding why that decision was made. Do you think kind of getting that better understanding has changed the relationships that referees have with one another? Um, look, I mean, certainly I can speak from Premier League level. It's a close-knit group. I'm not sure it's always been the same. I think certainly before I came on, maybe in the in the days when the, the people who are talking on TV now, um, I'm not sure it was always that close-knit group from, from stories that were here. Whereas now I think there's a realisation that actually we, we should consider ourselves that 21st team. And they train together every two weeks. You know, they're sitting down and they're trying to come together to a to get a consensus on on certain decisions and trying to be, you know, so we can have consistency. But you'll never have 100% consistency because you've just said yourself, Danny, if me and you looked at a clip, I'd say it's a red card. You'd say it's a yellow card. You can 100% justify the yellow to yourself. I can 100% justify why I think it's a red. Therefore, VAR will never be perfect. So, because it's human decisions at the end of the day. So, yeah, as a group of refs, I think they've probably come closer because of the media scrutiny because you realise that there are not many friends that you have in football, so you kind of have to look after each other in that sense. So it's interesting you mentioned, you mentioned VAR, Bobby. What, do you, what are your thoughts on it? Like, are you in favour of it or do you feel like it maybe undermines you? Or No, I How's... certainly don't feel it undermines as a referee, mate, not at all. As a ref, look, there is no worse feeling than driving home from a game of football knowing you've made a, a game-changing mistake and if we can eradicate that from a selfish perspective as a referee, then brilliant. You know, that nobody wants to see that. And it, it is bizarre that we're in 2020. Why should everybody in that stadium, including the managers and every fan who goes straight on Twitter and, and is able to see a clip, why we can't be in a situation where everybody can see that it's a massive mistake except the ref. You know, that, that doesn't make sense. So... To get rid of the really big decisions, the really big mistakes, I think it's brilliant. Last year, I mean, we were open not to have controversy in terms of refereeing. All the talk seemed to be on VAR last year. And 
most of it, when you think, was down to armpits and toenails. Um, that's really not the ref's fault. You know, that the laws of the game are very clear. It's black and white. If if a millimetre of your body is offside, there's nowhere for the ref, for the VAR to go. They, they can't say, oh, it's only a millimetre, we'll, we'll just give the goal. If it shows that it's a millimetre, it's offside. And I'm sure there'll be times at Stockley Park where the guys will have been, they'll have watched the clip and gone, oh, not again. Because they know they're on a hiding to nothing. You know, the decision's going to be changed and they're going to get battered for it, but it's not their fault. So unless there's a revision of law, then in certain aspects, then the hands are tied in that. But I, I like it. As a fan, I'll be honest, mate, I'm, I'm not a huge, as a football fan, I mean, I'm not huge on it. Um, I love that spine-tingling feeling when you think of the Aguero moment when he scored the winning goal to win the league. Put that into today's football. You know, are you going to celebrate in the same way? He scores the goal and then there's a bit of a lull and we make sure that it didn't touch anybody's hand 10 seconds ago. So that element of football that I don't want to lose, I love that fast-flowing you know, not stop, start. I love that. But if people want the big decisions right and they want VAR, then they've got to get used to the fact that we are going to have pauses in games while referees check them. So, yeah, think Dan, not huge, the ref, brilliant, love it. Do you think perhaps it's some VAR almost needs a bit more representation, almost needs somebody standing up for it a little bit more in terms of, you know, as you say, it, most weekends in the media it gets battered about mm. and... People who I often wonder if people who stand up for it in terms of people who want it, they tend to do it more on a basis of, well, as you say, as you said there, because that was kind of before it came in. I was I was very in favour of it because mm. I, I always thought it was ridiculous that you'd be sat at home watching a match and I knew better what was going on than the fellow who was in charge of it. It just seemed a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, and, and whilst I do. I, I, I wonder if the idea behind it is correct, but the execution of it's not quite right yet. And I wonder if that kind of more balanced argument might help with the, the discourse almost. Yeah, I think there's probably two points of it. I mean, the first one you said, it's the, the execution is not quite right. You know, we've had video technology in rugby and cricket for 20 years, um, and they're still tinkering to get it right. So we've had it in football for six months and people expected perfection from day one, and that was never going to be likely. Um and the Premier League sat back and watched a couple of countries start off with it um, and then tried to pick the best bits from it. They tried something in terms of the refs just being told the outcomes, whether that was a success or not. They tried it. Maybe they'll change that a little bit so the refs will start looking at the screens. But it's new. You know, it's new for the refs as well. So we're kind of trying to get used to get used to the whole system as well. Um, it's here to stay ultimately, though. You know, it's not yeah. going anywhere. So the problem we have, mate, is that so many pundits came out and said, we could sort this in five seconds. We want, we need technology. We brought in technology, and these are the people now saying it's ruining the game. You know, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. The, the issue, if you think the pressure that's on the VAR, the VAR is watching the game all the time. So all this, the VAR didn't even check it, is absolute nonsense. I've done that job, and mentally that is... 10 times more tiring than refereeing the game because you've got all of these screens in front of you, you're watching the game, um, you're listening all the time to the conversation that the referees and assistants are having, which is a lot of chat. You're not conversing with them, so you're only listening. And then you see something happen 
And the only time you're going to get involved is a game-changing decision. And then so every decision you're going to make is pressure because you know it's going to be a big outcome, potentially. As soon as you see a tackle and they'll tell on TV, oh, yeah, look at this challenge, you can see it's, it's clearly a red card. And then two minutes later, television go, actually, we, we found this angle and he gets a touch on the ball. VAR doesn't have that luxury. You know, they have 24 camera angles. They've got to find that one camera angle that proves right or wrong. And if it's if you've looked at 23 and it's the 24th that shows it, that's going to take a bit of time. What you can't do is look at two camera angles and go, yeah, it looks fine, play on. And then two minutes later, Sky Sports find an angle that shows that you were wrong. Nobody will accept that because everyone expects perfection from VAR. So it's not an easy job. It's a really taxing, mentally taxing job. Um, but yeah, like I said, to, to expect perfection on it from from day one is uh, was pretty naive from fans. Do you think there might be some benefit to, because there's been some discussion around maybe miking up the referees. Mm. Do you think that might be something that, that would help or would that be maybe as a referee be something you might be opposed to? I certainly, I would welcome that. I certainly wouldn't want my conversations to be broadcast throughout the game like rugby. Um, basically, you would it would be interesting on week one for people to hear what the refs and the assistants say. After week one, they wouldn't want it because it is just it can at times just sound like nonsense. All the time, you've got the two assistant referees that are talking and. The counting in three, two, one now when the ball's being kicked. That's not enjoyable to listen to on TV. Um, but that conversation between referee and VAR, I think would be brilliant to broadcast. Because I think a lot of negativity comes around people not understanding what's happening. Yeah. Not understanding the process of how did you get from nothing to penalty kick and red card. You know, it's not being shown on the screen. So I think we could learn a lot from rugby union, especially we, we do a lot of work or we've done a lot of work with the rugby union premiership reps, been to their training camps um, and watched how they use their TMOs and they're very clever with it. You know, they stand and they talk, the, the feed is broadcast and basically what works really well on that, they will know 99% of the time they look at a clip or they look at what's just happened and they'll know straight away whether it's a red card or not. But they don't just go, yeah, it's a red card. If you watch the rugby union guys, they'll talk to the TMO, right? This is what I'm looking at. It's a, you know, his his arm is high in the tackle. It's caught him on the chin. It's force. What they're doing all the time is that people watching at home, they're building that picture in their head. And by the time the red card comes out, everyone goes, well, yeah, clearly it's a red card. It's logical. By talking, it also shuts up the commentator. Because the commentator can't talk while the referee's talking because people want to hear the ref. So it gives you a platform to actually educate people who are watching at home as to not just that it's a red card, but it's a red card because it's excessive force in the tackle. The studs are raised, caught him on the Achilles. All those things that people then understand it. And it creates another element of entertainment as well, I suppose, as a fan. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be against that. Not at all. I think that actually would welcome that. No one would understand a word I'm saying, Dan, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bobby, just want to pick up on something uh, you said before. You know about putting fires out in a game? Yeah. Um, did you ever, as a referee, do you ever have to go back through like historical games and and maybe learn from mistakes maybe a few years ago? The, the one that I can think of, have you ever heard of the Battle of Bramall Lane? 
Yes, absolutely. Eddie Wolf <laughs> on the referee, yeah. How how would you have gone about that? I, I think, I mean, Ed, funnily enough, Eddie was my coach when I was on the Premier League. Um, he's a coach to the Premier League referees now, that ref. Uh, I just think that was that was an impossible situation for the ref. You can once players get into a mindset of this is what I'm going to do, you can't affect that as a referee. You can only deal with the aftermath. You can you can try and talk to people and keep them calm and whatever else. But if someone's going to punch someone, mate, then I can't. I'm not going to stand in the way of that and try and pull him back. Yeah, I'm absolutely. Him off when he does it, so yeah, you you're constantly looking at at your own performances and saying, can I be better? The best referees are not ones who sit and say, look, I'm on telly. They're the ones who will look at themselves on TV and go, right, I wasn't happy with that. Why am I in that position? And it might just be five metres that nobody else would notice. But you're looking, why am I in that position? Why am I five metres there when I want to be there? So personally, I would spend probably two two hours, two and a half hours re-watching a game that I've just refereed the day after. I would re-watch it and go over every single thing, pause it, write things down, not happy with that. Why am I doing that? Um, so, yeah, I, I think to be better, you have to analyse it. Clubs do it. You know, they'll sit down and go over the games that they've just had. Um, referees would be naive not to. That's why they're professional. They've got the time to be able to do that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of self-analysis. And you've got to be honest with yourself as well. And, you know, you, it's pointless just watching and going, oh, I just got unlucky there. Yeah. As I said, every time you make a mistake, there's a reason you made the mistake. If a player runs into you and you didn't see them, you've been unlucky. You know, if it's because you're five metres out of position, that's not unlucky. You've got to look and go, right, well, how can I be in the best position next time? Because I've got one set of eyes, but I know the 30 cameras that are going to prove me wrong, potentially. So I've got to be in the best position I can be in. So you've got to be honest and critical with yourself. Um <laughs> So by that point, do you think you can be in form as a referee? Yeah, definitely. I know. I mean, certainly my last season on the Premier League, I was I spent I got battered in the press by an ex-referee for my for my weight actually, which I thought was a little bit below the belt. Um, harsh, harsh, I think. Yeah, and the 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 headline basically saying that I was making mistakes because I was overweight. It wasn't that I was out of form. Refereeing is as much a confidence game as as football is, and. If you start letting it play on your mind a little bit, um, you're not con- you're not maybe not concentrating fully on the next decision or the next game, uh, and then it can you know you can start putting pressure on yourself then, and that's when mistakes happen. If I talk about, um, I had a period over Christmas. I went to West Br- uh, West Brom, Bournemouth against West Ham. I didn't referee well for whatever reason. Sometimes, like when when you're playing golf, you're just hitting the ball dead straight all the time. There's other times. You forget how to hold the golf club. You know, That's it's what I do. Range, I right? <laughs> and if a ref, it can be that sometimes there's times you see everything, you know, the little flicks, you, you're in a great position. It just happens. And there's other times you feel like you're fighting against it for 90 minutes, trying to be in the right position. And you seem to be getting all the little decisions wrong for whatever reason. Um, and I went to Bournemouth West Ham. I got a, I gave a yellow card that should have been a red. There's a decision in the last minute where the assistant puts the flag up and... You know, I get accused of overruling the assistant, which didn't happen. But that, you know, I got battered in the press. You're then going on quickly to your next game, which I think was Swansea Tottenham. There's an offside goal in it. And even though offside is not my domain as a referee, I carry the can for the team. So again, it's another mistake that happened in our game. 
And then you follow on from that one and you go and do Liverpool-Everton in the FA Cup. And obviously you've got the scenario where you've got a little bit of a soft penalty. You've got Firmino's pushed into the stand. So again, this it can just snowball a bit. This is where sports psychologists come in massively for referees. You know, we work with some professional sports psychologists who work with the referees and you do need them sometimes. You, you've got to, you know, you've got to be big enough to be talking about mental health, bring that right down in terms of the psychology of refereeing. You can't sit there and just say, oh, I'll, I'll be all right. You can't bottle it up because the more you do it, you're going to make another mistake and another mistake and and then you just lose it. You know, then the reputation potential is gone. I suppose so, yeah. It's quite an alien kind of job, really, because you don't mm. have voice there. There's, I think Paul Durkin is the only one I can think of who's come yeah. out and never said anything in a press conference afterwards. Yeah. And, and that was years ago. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have an issue doing that. But again, you've got to understand that they wouldn't... How many referees do you think they get out in front of a camera to describe a really good decision? Oh, no. no. You'd never see it. <laughs> so if you're only pulling refs out every week, oh, come and explain this mistake, come and explain... At some stage, you know, people are going to lose patience with that and they're going to go, this is the fifth time he's been out this season. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's, I understand that taking care of referees a little bit that way. Um, yeah. But similarly with players, you know, if a player gets sent off and costs the team the game, they don't hoik them in front of a camera and say, explain what you're thinking, you've let your team down. They don't do it to players and yet they would, they would love to do it to referees for entertainment. So I understand why they don't like referees going in front of cameras. Yeah, and just to, to move on, uh, just a little bit further down the line, um, obviously in 2000, you've spoken about this or touched on it a little bit before. In 2018, you, you kind of left the professional refereeing game. Um, I think I'm all right to say it was after a video was sent to yeah, the employers. Um, it was by a friend as well, wasn't it? Or, or a, a yeah. Somebody close to me. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't my brother. I'll put that out there. I mean, the amount of people who got it was probably his brother. And then he got his place on Premier League. It really wasn't. So I'm not going to throw out who it was, but I will say, and he had nothing to do with it. So <laughs> you can imagine it, couldn't you? Like get a like an episode of EastEnders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Phil and Grant badly. <laughs> um so your career was probably like loads of scrutiny at that point. Um just how hard was that period of your life for for that time? It was tough, mate, and it and it's still tough. You know, I, I'm sitting here now. I'm look. I'm in my living room, and I've got three footballs that are, that are mounted. Um, you know, one's a Community Shield ball, one's the FA Cup final ball, and the other's a Championship playoff final ball. And that, as much as I'm dead proud of them, they're little reminders about what you had. You know, yeah. and so it kind of works in a positive, probably a little bit negative sometimes. Look, I, I've never made any excuse for, for my actions. I sent a private joke, a dark private joke. It was in context. It was supposed to be taking the mickey out of myself. Um, out of context, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. And, you know, my dad was physically disabled. I grew up, I lived in a poor family. I'm not even going to say we were, you know, we, we were a poor family um, who's, who were on benefits, my dad was, as I said, physically disabled and couldn't work. So I, I know the hardships that comes with that. Um, so then it, that makes it even more embarrassing in a sense, you know, that, that I would lose my job for that, to be accused of being discriminatory for that. But, you know, 
a video ultimately was sent to them. They didn't have the context of it. And had that have found its way into the papers, I can understand why they would have been so scared that that would have blown up in that. Hmm. Um, you know, it's such a big thing at the moment, discrimination, discrimination and rightly so. You know, it, there is no place for it. And as an employer, they have a responsibility to deal with that strongly. And they dealt with it in the, the strongest way that, that they could. Whether I think that's right or wrong is, by the by, I respect that decision. So I let myself down. I've never looked for, I've never tried to make myself into a victim. And when I talk about mental health, yes, it's, that's the main thing, I think, you know, that people are scared of making themselves sound like, you know, they just want people to feel sorry for them. And I think we do live in a culture a little bit where certainly on social media, where there are times where it's just purely for attention, you know, that people will claim that this is wrong and this is wrong. But, you know, that, that I think that's quite dangerous if we end up in a society where nobody believes you. Yeah, absolutely. No, if nobody believes you and they all just think it's the boy who cried wolf, nobody's going to talk. So I don't want to sound like a victim. I want to use my story that I messed up ultimately. I take responsibility for it. I caused my own pain in that sense. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that, that doesn't mean it's justified. It doesn't mean that it's okay, then I just deserve it. It was tough. Look, I, I put on a face. I tried to be smiley. I tried to be happy as much as I could. And then when I put the lights out at night, you're on a different planet. You know, it's, it's hard because you're not only thinking about your career that you've lost that you'll never do again. Um, I lost everything. You know, that, that was my job. That was my job. So I lost my house. I lost my car financially. It absolutely destroyed me. Um, I, you know, my, I have two kids. It destroyed them. You know, I don't live with my two kids. Um, but I was still paying their mortgage. I was still paying for everything there. And, you know, they, they lost the house. So this is just a knock-on effect of everything. And that's no blame. It, it was my mistake that did it. So you've got all this guilt, not just self-pity, but guilt of how it's affected my own kids, of guilt of how it's affected my family and people, you know, the sun knocking on the door and wanting a scoop, basically just wanting that little that little word that's twisted, that's wrong. And my family having to worry about every time someone knocks on the door, every time the phone rings, and it's not easy. You know, and I, and I did go to some of the, to probably to the darkest places you can go to. I, I sat thinking on a night, is it worth it? Is it the easy way out? Is it probably the thing that kept me from properly considering that? Because I, it, I think it can be quite throwaway sometimes to say, oh, yeah, I, I considered, you know, going as far as that. Um, if I'm going to be hand on heart, honest yes it, it was a consideration but it was never an option because i have got two kids i've got a brilliant partner i've got a brilliant family in andy and my mom and, and that bigger family around it was never an option and i struggled with it for a long time and the end of last year at the end of uh, yeah 2019 my partner actually booked without even asking me because she knew i wouldn't she booked for me to go and see a professional um, and I, I hadn't spoken about any of this in the press. It was getting me down because I'd made a lot of new friends over here in Norway who I was basically lying to as to why I'd left the Premier League. 
you know, I wasn't telling them the truth because I had a, a, an agreement of non-disclosure, which was for my own protection. This isn't so that this wasn't a company thing. This was to try to be able to give me the opportunity to get employment. You know, if you're discriminatory and been sacked for that, it's going to be difficult to mud sticks, doesn't it? Um, so she booked in for me to go and see this guy. I went, I was skeptical and it's the best decision I ever made. Um, he didn't judge me. He just sat and listened and I sat and cried. I went through everything. Um, and he was brutal. He, he just made a couple of sentences at me that took me by surprise. I didn't, I almost expected a cuddle from him, you know, and, <laughs> and, and he, he just, he was only a young lad, only a young guy. And, you know, I was talking about the option that, that I just discussed and was it something that, and he said, are you going to do it? I thought, oh, that's a bit cold. I went, um, no, he won't stop talking about it then. It's off the table. So let's put that to one side. And I thought, wow, yeah. Yeah, not an option. Let's. And he said, right, what have you got to lose? Your reputation's in bits in the papers. They've made stuff up in the papers. It's actually more that comes across as worse than the actual story, you know, that he posted it on social media. You didn't. You, you sent it as a private text message. Um, he said, put the story out there. Just put it out. What can you lose? You can't lose anything financial because you've got nothing. You can't lose anything reputational because it's not in a great place. You can't lose anything. And I thought about it and probably a little bit of fear. I didn't want to put myself up through all that tabloid rubbish again. Um, and I sat on New Year's Eve last year. Mrs. was getting ready. We were going to go out to a New Year's Eve party at one of her friends. And I sat and I thought, right, end of the year, I just wrote it into the notes on my phone. I, I didn't even intend to post it, to be honest. I had no intention of posting it and telling anyone the story. I wrote it in the notes section on my phone. Um, and when I finished it, I thought, God, you know what? Just get, get rid of this. Just put it out on New Year's Eve. No one will see it because it's New Year's Eve. And I'll get battered by a few people, but at least it's out there. Then I don't have to lie to anyone. Put it out about five o'clock on New Year's Eve and it just went mental. I just didn't expect it at all. Um, and that really helped because I sat in tears the day after reading through people's messages saying I got sacked from my job for similar this is how it affected my family. People opened up. You know, they almost used that as a tool to help themselves, and that were quite humbling. Get a lot of those kind of messages, and I answered every one of them personally. Just do a copy and paste, and I took the time. There's over three thousand private messages. Um, I regretted it when I got to about hundred, but <laughs> <laughs> but I thought no, these people have taken the time, and they don't know me, and they've taken the time to send me, even if it's just keep your chin up. You know, I know what you're going through. I know they deserve they deserve my time to send one back. And it just it just turned that circle around. You know, it, I still struggle. I still struggle to sleep at times. That's more for thinking about my kids and whatever else because I've now been given the opportunity to ref back in England. Um, and the one thing I'm I can walk away with I, I don't walk away with any pride in the story at all. What I do walk away with pride in is probably what we talked about earlier when it comes down to ex refs. I didn't go bitter. I didn't start blaming people for my own mistakes. And that maybe gave me the opportunity to actually go back and referee because I hadn't burnt any bridges. And I did learn from my mistake. I went to an FA discrimination workshop 
I don't, I, I'm not a discriminatory person. I don't have to just feel that. I know I'm not. I stand up on social media for LGBT rights against racism. I hate discrimination. But you can, you can never be educated enough on that. So I happily attended that. It wasn't just a tick box exercise. And all these little things that just set your mind back into the right place, the right focus, rather than just being, you know, beating yourself up and just feeling dark about everything. So I'm long-winded that answer. I apologise for that. That's a lot of talking there. But no, I think everything you said was was completely spot on. I think when you when you put it out there, you almost take that power away from people. Yes. To, to say what they want to say and you go well this is my story and I, I imagine you kind of achieving a bit of peace when you in yourself when you when you do that because you know you, you kind of not you're proving people wrong and you go well if you want to believe it believe it but i know what's right and yeah. i think that's a that's a really really good way of doing it and i, I also i like the way you, you said you know you take responsibility for it and mm. Um, you kind of own up to it. I think you see quite a few, a few different apologies, and I we kind of laugh at them in, in our groups of, you know, celebrities and, and football players. The hurried apologies that yeah. are made on Twitter, and they're hilarious because half the time they're not apologising. No. Um, no. I, don't, I don't feel bad saying that because I watched one the other week of a, of a certain footballer, and it, it didn't make any sense. He didn't once apologise. So. Um, I think you know to actually own up to that responsibility is is really really big of you. Yeah, it, it, the, look, the fact is, if I got the option then to sit down and do um, like interviews for for decent amounts of money, to be honest, and as I said, financially, I haven't worked since. You know, because again, I've come to a new country. Um, I got a job in a bar because I had to. I had to work here within six months in Norway, otherwise I, I couldn't stay. Yeah. I'd never worked in a bar in my life. <laughs> I needed a job and ended up working in, you know, pulling beers in a in an, in an Irish bar in Oslo and people coming in going, are you a ref? <laughs> so it was just a bit bizarre that people thought. But it gave me a little bit of sense of normality back. You know, it gave me a little bit of normal life and just meeting people and speaking and, and I, I got to a stage where when I put that story out, I was offered quite a lot of money to, and sit down and do like a tabloid <clears throat> expose a little bit. Um, and I opted in the end to go for for the BBC, which um, Mark, so Clem from the BBC came out, Mark came out, out to Oslo. And for no money, I, I took no money for that. I didn't want any money for it. What I wanted was it to be my words. You know, I wanted to control what was said. And then anything that was written afterwards, they could only write what I'd said. So I that I felt a real sense of empowerment by actually taking um, by taking control of that story rather than giving a few bits and then they concentrate on you know the what they consider to be the juiciest part for a good story. I just told the story as it was and and allowed them to quote that. Um, and in that sense, as I said, I know it's it's a little bit cliche these days, but just by talking and opening up and and actually saying what had been in my head. Um, it just put me on the road to a much better place to where where I'm heading now, hopefully. And you you said before, you know, you, you you're still on that road to yeah. to kind of recovery uh, and coming back from that this period in your life. And um, one of the things, just from reading the story, with it being a a, a close friend who mm. who sent that video, has it been 
has that been really tough? Is that what makes it harder? You know, the trust that probably between you at the time is that obviously yeah. you don't need to go into too much detail, but is it has it changed your your view of who you trust, how you trust? Um, yeah, I mean, a little bit to an extent, I guess. But one thing it did teach me more than anything, again, again, I talked about making mistakes as a referee, that you've got to be honest and you've got to look at your own mistakes. The one thing I realised is that even in a private text message, the moment you press send, you no longer control that. Um, and even if it was in the best of, you know, best of intentions, if they think it's funny and pass it on to someone else, who takes offence? I am in no control of that whatsoever. So I can only control my own actions. The person who did it, you know, they, they'll know whether whether they feel comfortable with that or not. Um, but it burns a lot of calories thinking about that. And at the moment, you know, it's been such a long process and trying to concentrate on getting myself right um, and trying to look after people around me and, and feel their sort of love coming towards me a little bit. That I I, I don't I don't resent people I don't hate people I I'm gutted for everything that happened I'm gutted for the way it happened, um, but you know I I can only move forward I can't change what's happened, so you can have a choice of you move forward and try and rebuild your life or you can keep looking backwards and and live with bitterness and I don't think that's a, a good look so yeah absolutely. Absolutely, and and just to to move on to more exciting um, uh, part of your life, you're making a return to the football league whenever it starts again. Yeah. yeah. How excited are you? Are you looking forward to it? I can't wait, mate. I cannot wait. I mean, obviously, I refereed here in Norway, and they gave me the platform to be able to continue refereeing, which, again, talked about mental health. It was the one thing that I brought over from England that I could continue doing, and it was the one bit, that I could still keep as as me, you know, just going out there and refereeing again. So to be given the opportunity to go back and referee, and people might say, oh, you deserve, you should go back to the Premier League. I've been out of the Premier League for what will be three years now, or will be then. Um, and that's a long time out. That's too long. Too much has happened, VAR and all the training I've missed. I couldn't just walk back into the Premier League. Ability-wise, maybe, I don't know. But again, you need that sharpness back as well. I love Football League. I love it. I love going to places like Prenton Park and to, you know, down to Gillingham and wherever. I love that football league atmosphere. I grew up supporting a football league club. So I know what it means to the fans. I know that feeling. Even as a Premier League ref, I loved going and doing football league games. So I can't wait to get back into it. I don't expect any um, any favours by any stretch. I don't expect that I'm going to get any higher marks because of where I've ref. If I make a mistake, I'll be called out for that. Uh I've had a lot of support from fans, from my fans, from football fans. Um, but I know for a fact that when I'm refereeing their team, I just go back to being, you know, the guy in black who, who they're going to batter on a Saturday afternoon. That's fine. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm training harder, as hard as I can over here. Um, and it's just having that sort of bit between my teeth again to say, right, I've done it once. So I know I can do it, but you've got to earn it again. You know, and I can't just fall back on on what's happened in the past. I've said I don't want to look backwards in terms of my own life. I can't just expect to look backwards and, and want favours for it. I'm going to work harder than I've ever worked. I'm going to be fitter than I've ever been. Um, 
And I'm going to take every one of those games as the FA Cup final because, you know, I, I will feel so fortunate and so privileged every time I step out onto onto a game, whether that's in front of 70,000 or 1,000. Um, I want to enjoy every moment because refereeing is quite a short career, longer than a footballer, obviously, but I probably have got realistically 15 years left as a ref. I still have ambition. I want to get back to the Premier League. I want to get back onto the international list. Um, but I know I've got to work hard. I've got to work as hard as anybody, maybe harder than everybody, to reprove myself. Um, but I'm dead excited. I cannot wait to get back out there again. And, and I think for mentally for me, I think this will be you know, such a huge step forward. Such a huge Any danger or any stadiums you'd want to avoid, maybe? <laughs> I'm thinking I wouldn't really want my first game back to be the den. Oh, do you know what? I'd love it. <laughs> I, mean, I said before, do you know what? The bigger the the bigger the atmosphere sometimes, the the better it is to ref. You go to Greece and you go to Turkey, Galatasaray and Fenerbahce, and you realise what it's like to ref in an atmosphere. We don't have that in England. Um I'll I'll snap your hand off for any game. Any game. I, I don't care if it's you know 23rd against 24th in League Two, not a problem at all. I'll be there and I'll be as, as happy. I'll be happier than any referee that's out that weekend, I promise you. So, yeah, I can't wait to get back in. I know that I've I said I know I've got to work hard. I know I'll still make mistakes, you know, you know. but to have the opportunity to go and do it again is it feels like like a dream come true all over again, if that's, you know, if that's not sounding too cheesy. That's it. You know what? That's really nice. And when you come to Brenton Park next time, hopefully we'll get a nice. Uh... Nice couple of penalties or something like that. <laughs> You're all the same. You're all the same. You don't care about me. <laughs> Welcome back to my market. I've still got Ryan and Ant. Hope you've enjoyed Bobby Madley's interview there. It was certainly something that um it was certainly something that, that I think we were all looking forward to. And 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 Ant, you and I did the interview and I think we took a lot out of it, both in terms of the content and the and, and the stuff that, that Bobby was saying, but also having the opportunity to speak to somebody of his sort of level and standing in the game. And, and and he was such a nice fella. And I think we both had a, a very enjoyable evening. And I think that comes across in the interview. He was incredibly honest and incredibly open about the things that he'd gone through and the experience that he's had. And also the way that he'd been able to come back from that. One of the things that I think shone through was he was very quick to take the sort of part of the, the story and part of the stuff that had happened on himself and the stuff that, that maybe he could have done differently and the things that he can do better in, in future. And that was clearly a big part of his recovery, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I think there's, yeah, it comes through in the interview really well, doesn't it? You know, I think it is a it is a responsibility thing as well. I know there's there's other factors involved as he, as he talks about, but I think there is, you know, we're it probably gave him a bit of chance to go, hang on, what am I actually doing here as well? You know, am I going to carry on being like this or not? And I think for him, you know, the, the chance to still be able to do it at a good level and, and still, be, you know, not lose completely everything, but the chance to go away from the limelight and, you know, find your head in, in what I imagine is to, meant to be a very, very nice place in Norway. Um, aside from the uh, beer prices, aside yeah. That. Aside from that, um, I think that's a that's just you know a, a really good way to do it. And he, he 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 sounded really honest, really accepting of what had gone on. He didn't seem to sound like he he held any grudges or, or anything like that. And 
no, I think that's that's. I thought that was. That, I thought that, that was. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was the most. Um, what did I say adult thing about it. Yeah. Really, I think I think it was just a, quite a well. You can tell he's quite a well-rounded individual. That you know was quite accepting of his mistakes, and I think there's a lot out there right now who probably don't really understand the full story, or probably still believe the story that was going around. So. I think anyone who's had a little listen to that there is, is probably going to learn a lot and, and learn a lot about what it is to to grow as a person as well. Yeah, I think not holding on to that bitterness particularly, I think is really impressive, particularly because you could imagine from listening to the story, you know, we obviously don't know the full details of everything that's involved, but he, he gave quite a lot of the, the information in, in in that interview with us and, and, and the one that he did with the BBC as well. And I think you can see why you would be, annoyed in his situation the way that it ended up but he doesn't carry any of that with him because I think he's worked out it's not helpful and it's better for him to just kind of be accepting of the situation he's in and work to a to a conclusion that's satisfactory for him which is what he's doing at the moment I suppose then Ryan as somebody you were listening you you obviously went on on that interview with us that evening but listening back what kind of things did you pick up on from from Bobby's Bobby's story and and some of the things that he was saying um, I think what you touched on before about him being well-rounded, I think that was something that shone through throughout his life. Um, something that stuck out to me was early doors, how he sort of got into refereeing when a referee said, just go on a course and it would have been easy for him there to just turn around and go, shut up, mate, and carry on playing football. But he thought, do you know what? I'll go. I'll see what it's like on the other side. Um, he did it, obviously fell in love with it and the rest was history. But I think that sort of attitude towards people having a different opinion to him or people not always seeing the things he saw, that he was willing to go and see it from their perspective. And I think that stood him in good stead when he, he ran into difficulties later in life because rather than say, that's it, now I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm going to go feel sorry for myself, he took himself away, he stayed involved, actively refereeing somewhere else, still doing what he loved. And when the time was right to, to make a return, he, he did it and he was very pragmatic about it and honest about his approach. And, it, it must be so hard for someone like him because refs get a hard rap at the best of times, mm. let alone when a crowd has ammunition and social media has ammunition. I mean, you go on Saturday to watch two teams and almost the referee becomes the villain for both sets of fans. There's no one there cheering the ref on. He's either, but well, that's his job, or he's a knobhead. That's sort of the two options he's got. They literally be tolerable or the enemy. So... To actually have the confidence to go back on the pitch and go, I know what happened. Everyone else might know what happened, but I'm comfortable knowing what happened and I'm comfortable to, to come back to football. I thought that was, it was really nice, really, that he is back in football. I think it would have been sad to lose him because he's such a character. Yeah. One thing that I picked up on as well was, I think going back to the conversation we had with, with Rick Edwards a few weeks back where we were talking about maybe some of the pressures to come from, from fame and some of the pressures to come from being in the spotlight. One thing that I did think about while I was listening to it back the other day was it must be really difficult when something like that happens, when that idea that we were talking about a public ownership of people who were in the, who, who were famous, that everyone knows your stories, everyone knows your personal life and things that are mm. going on. So it must be really difficult, A, just dealing with that situation in and of itself because it's an incredibly stressful and, 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 and upsetting time. But to then, on the back of that, also have to deal with the fact that, you know, thousands of people know about it and are talking about it and and, and are debating it or you know what i mean like it's go imagine like a, you, the, a difficult thing in your life and you know for a fact that there are people talking about it in whatsapp groups that you've never mm. met before it must just be really hard to quantify in your own head 
I guess then being able to deal with all that and, as you say, come back, I think that demonstrates a real strong personality from Bobby. And I think the fact that he didn't hold on to any of the bitterness was really useful for him to be able to let go of those difficult feelings that he was having. And you, you look like you were gonna, you were gonna chime in then, mate. What were you, what were you gonna? No, add? I was. I was just going to say, you know, obviously we've been speaking the last couple of weeks about like celebrity status and 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 the like, and obviously, you know, we've spoken about the pitfalls of that. But the other the other side of that is that you know, he, he was able to get his side of the story out as well, which is which is fantastic. He's been able to do it here. He's been able to do it at the BBC, like you said before, and there is that ability for them as well. Um, often we. I don't quite know how it works, but often we only really get one side of it and then it comes out in trips and drabs and and then you get into a big, uh, I don't know, whirlwind really of like what's real, what isn't, what happened, what didn't happen. And I think that's where the confusion comes, particularly for the public. And I imagine that's where the confusion and, and kind of anxiousness comes from, from the person it, it themselves because there's so many different opinions on it and views on it i mean i i've said to you a couple of times you go on twitter or anywhere these days one person's got one view one person's got another view there's like 10 different views which ones you pick it's so hard and i think if you know there's 10 different little branches of it all you know and that's just 10 people it times that again by 10 and times it again and, time, and it just goes like wildfire and it's just so difficult um, but the um, the positive is is that he's able to go and get it out here, and others are able to go and get it out, depending on what it is, and get their side across. But it, should they ever come to that, probably not. <laughs> At least I suppose, but, as you say, it's nice that there's an environment where he's able to a give his side of the story and b say, look, I'm really struggling with this, yeah, and this is what I'm doing about it. And for people to, you know, we said thousands of people have messaged him, and he took the time yeah. to write back to him as well, which I thought well, was, it was, was a bit we, of mark we, on him as well. We've spoken before as well. Just it just takes the sting out of it as well. I'd imagine, um, you know, stuff like that. It's like a defence, and it's a good defence as well. You know, we talk about like, you know, is it being self-deprecating? You know, in terms yeah. of like comedy and stuff, and like it, it's a good defence because it works. You, you get ahead of someone. Um, so I think this is this is good as well. This is it's the best way to do it. You just get out there and, and just go, Oh, and everyone probably kind of went home. Okay. Wasn't what I was expecting. Not yeah. great. Not, not brilliant, but it's not as bad as whatever was being said. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ryan, you've raised your hand. Yeah. I've, I just want to say as well, for someone like me listening, I'm someone who hates the like bit of a people pleaser. I hate to thought of someone not liking me or having an opinion on me. That isn't true. I'd feel the need to justify to every single individual so they knew the truth. But in reality, I think the healthiest approach is to draw the line on it and sort of, if your immediate circle and the people you care about know it's a load of nonsense and know what you've done and you've learned from it, then you don't really need to go around trying to justify it to everyone and it ends up becoming you, if you see what I mean. If he, mm. if he, if he went on this big campaign to, to constantly clear his name and that's all he did for the, the next few years, then he'd almost fall victim to it. But I think he held his hand up. He explained the situation through the means he needed to, and it's allowed him to move on. I think that's healthy, and that, that's a lesson other people can learn to to sort of say, listen, if people are talking or people having an opinion on you that you know is not true, well, if you don't know them, let it go. Yeah. Let you go. can't, you can't, not, not everyone's going to like you, particularly yeah, if you're... Exactly. 
you know, I, I suppose Bobby probably wouldn't refer to himself as famous, but he, he has a level of fame that will mean that a significant amount of people know who he is. And not everybody's going to like you, especially if you're a referee. Probably quite used to people not liking you. But you've, I think that, as you say, Ryan, that's a really healthy thing for, for somebody to be able to accept yeah. it. You're not going to be able to convince everyone. You're not going to be able to win every argument. Sometimes people just aren't going to like you. And I think that's a really healthy approach to, to take to, to life, generally. And I think the, the nice thing is, is he still enjoys what he does, mm. which is great. I think that's that's brilliant. You know, he's still... You know, you could, you could hear it in his voice, you know, when we were asking him about, you know, certain things, about, like, chatting to players and games and, you know, giving a little stick here and there. And you can genuinely tell, like... He enjoys this. This is quite fun, and it never made me want to go and be a referee. Like, but it's you can you can definitely tell. Like, it it must be enjoyable. I mean, he's got a box seat to watching top players play football. All right, yeah, he has to blow his whistle now and again. Get called a get called at him and whatever you want, but. You know, it's, you're only saying it's top players because he refereed Morecambe in his first game back, and presumably Jordan Slew was in the lineup. Hey, Jordan Slew's a good player. <laughs> I, 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 I'm fully behind Jordan Slew, and I'm fully behind that Morecambe team as well. Yeah, they were Slew in, aren't they? For <laughs> I think that's probably a good time for us to wrap up. If those are the type of things that people <laughs> are bringing to the table, chaps. Thanks very much for your for your time and for your insights, as per usual. And thanks to you, the listener, for for joining us once again. We'll be back on Friday, where we'll be speaking to Solihull Moors left back. Is Solihull he plays for? Isn't it now? Yeah. It is. Solly almost left back, Jordan Cranston. And uh, yeah, so we'll see you then. If you want to get in touch with us, you know where we are at the uh, the email, which is manmarkingpodcast.gmail.com. And if you want to find us on the socials, it's at marking underscore man. That's on Twitter. And don't forget to use the hashtag. And do you want to tell the listeners what the hashtag is? Where's the talking lads? Where's the talking lads? We're going to leave you now with Bobby Madley's quick fire, and we will see you on Friday. Thanks for listening. This one's actually all right. If you could officiate in any other sport, what would it be? Uh, cricket. Oh, I'm so happy you've said that. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> um, who's the most difficult player that you've refereed? Uh, probably. You're not going to know it. No professional player is difficult. Hardest one, gag call, uh, Des Brennan, Wakefield Sunday League, played for Poplar and Charleston. Absolute animal. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so earlier this season, uh, John Moss gave some sarky comments to the Bournemouth players. Yeah. Have you ever done anything similar? Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, this is, this is where man management comes in, that player sticks a ball over the bar from five yards out. You know, I'm going to walk past him and I'm going to be in his ear and say, I can do that. <laughs> I became a ref. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you do. You've got, to, you've got to be careful what you say, of course, as, as was highlighted, because it's okay to say it to refs and it's not okay to say it to players, apparently, back. But, yeah, we do have that banter that goes both ways. But you've got to pick your audience and your, and your timing. <laughs> Most memorable moments of your career, Bobby? Um... Probably that that email that dropped uh, for the game with Southampton and West Brom. Wasn't expecting it. Monday morning, four Monday afternoon, four o'clock. The email drops and says you're refereeing a Premier League game, and it's the best feeling. It's the you know most incredible cure for constipation you can imagine. 
<laughs> but that was probably it. That that feeling of my God, I'm going to referee a Premier League, and then pulling that Premier League shirt on on, a, on that Saturday afternoon. Probably that. Have you seen the Northern Lights while you've been in Norway? I have. I went to Svalbard a couple of weeks ago, um, which is an island. It's a three-hour flight north of Oslo, so you can imagine how far up that is. The world's most northern town at Longyearbyen. We went out and we went on a dog sled ride, and when we finished, we saw the Northern Lights, which was incredible. What's the best goal that you've seen whilst refereeing? Oh, I remember games and I remember things that happened. Probably the most amazing goals I've seen was Sadio Mane's hat-trick in within three minutes. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Which was, I think, Southampton and Aston Villa. I remember looking at scoreboard at 10 minutes and it was nil-nil. And I looked again at 13 minutes, it was 3-0. And it was like, oh, hello, where's that come <laughs> from? Um, so probably they're the, they're the most amazing goals. I'm sure there'll be some absolute crackers that, that I can't quite think of at the moment. Probably championship playoff final for, for importance of it as well. Hull City and Sheffield Wednesday. Um, I can't remember who scored it, but I was right behind it. And as soon as it left his foot, I said straight away on the microphones, that's a goal, 1-0. <laughs> and um, The Army, was, wasn't it? I can't remember. Um, Mo the Army? The Army, I think it was the Army, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Great goal. Have you ever not booked someone because you were scared of their reaction? No, never. No. The, the, the only time I've been a little bit nervous, actually, was in Liverpool. Um, <laughs> I was on the line for an FA Sunday Cup semi-final at Marines. It was Barry's Tavern. No, Barry's, Barry's against Libeck Tavern. So Barry's from Liverpool. Um, and last minute of the game, I think it was 3-1 to Libeck Tavern from Bristol. And there's a tackle that came in. And a guy behind me says, if you send him off, I promise you, you're dead. And it's the only time I thought, I believe this guy. <laughs> I believe him. So I did say yellow card. I didn't think I did think it was a yellow card, but I'm glad it wasn't. I'm glad I didn't think it was a red card because I might have considered it. Why the liners never stop the ball when it's rolling past them? Um, because uh, one, because they're crap at football <laughs> and they just embarrass themselves. Um, because basically it gives an advantage to the team who has the throw in. So they could take a quick throw in. If an assistant stops it and they take a quick throw in and they score a goal, then it's not really fair that, that they've had that advantage. Assistant's part of the field of play, technically. Um, so they, they can't really get involved in touching the ball in that sense. It just looks petty, though, doesn't it? It looks great. <laughs> I know. It's always, we always go, just stop it. It's now gone miles yeah. down the touchline. Yeah, that's why. It's so that it doesn't give an advantage to the, to the, to the team who have the throw in, so they can't take a quick throw. Oh, okay. What about, uh, you know, you get them them audible teams who like hide the ball boys when they're like 1-0 up. Yeah. Do you have any do you have any rules on that? Um, I mean, there are rules on it, to be fair. So if, if you if they have ball boys around the pitch and they're not doing it properly as a referee, you just basically over the microphones tell the fourth official, tell them to get the get the ball boys in. Ah, okay. So, yeah, there is there is sort of league rules for that anyway. I've just got this image of you sending off about 11 kids. <laughs> Funnily enough, my first sending off as a football league referee was a seven-foot duck. <laughs> um, I did my first championship game. I did uh, Preston and Derby. And the Derby keeper, I can't remember if it was Boas Mayle or Stephen Bywatt, one of the Boas Mayle, I think, he, he went walked back to take a goal kick and Deepdale Duck, who was behind <laughs> the net at the time, <laughs> before the game in the warm-up, and I thought it could cause me problems, this guy. Um, he, he held on to the back of the keeper's shirt as he went to take a goal kick and the keeper, I'm sure it was Mayo, he, he turned around and he was going to kill him. 
and I just had this vision of sending a goalkeeper off because he's punched, you know, a seven foot duck. <laughs> basically, I had the duck removed. He got marched away. <laughs> I went up to the fourth, officially got marched away. And then the next day, which again, I was horrified because I was quite new on the football league list. There was a, a delay to the kickoff at Sheffield United because um, Captain Blade, Sheffield United's mascot, had sat in the centre circle with a sign that said, Free the Preston One. So, that's attention you don't really want as a ref. That's definitely my best sending off.